Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? We are about to start. Professor Sir Hilary Bettles, Professor Clem C. Charan, Your Excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of CARICOM High Commissioners, I extend a, a very warm welcome to you and thank you very much for coming to this CARICOM lecture. This lecture is an integral part of a CARICOM week of activities. On Sunday, we had a very successful interfaith service and it be followed by other events. But tonight is Sir Hilary Beckles night when he will speak about CARICOM, providing not only a historic perspective of CARICOM, but speaking about the vision of CARICOM. Now my task tonight is very short and very simple, and that is to introduce the chair of this event tonight, Professor Clem Sichiran. So without much more ado, I hand over to the chair, Professor Sen Cleechiran. Thank you, Your Excellency. Um, I don't do short. <laughs> so I got a problem here. To introduce Sir Hillary, as far as I'm concerned, should take about half hour. Um, so I really got to speed this thing up now. This is going to be difficult for me. I just want to um, welcome everybody here on behalf of the caucus of Caribbean High Commissioners. I also want to acknowledge the presence here of the British members of the British Foundation of the University of the West Indies, because as you know, Sir Hillary has been deeply, very closely involved with the development and the modernization of this great institution, not only in Barbados, where he is the principal, but also the University of the West Indies and the regional system as a whole. So let me just try to summarize in about two minutes the greatness of this man who is our speaker tonight. Um, Sir Hillary, as you know, was born in Barbados, but he is a Caribbean man. I prefer to say he's a West Indian man. Um, studied at the University of Hull, got his PhD at the age of 25, I think there was only one other West Indian who got it before, younger than him. He's a fellow that some of you may know. His name was Walter Rodney. And I'm sure um, Hillary wouldn't mind being in that company. Um, the doctoral thesis remains a very important work. I see one of my students here, Bob. Um, you know how often I talk about uh, Hilary Beckles' work. We couldn't do our work without discussing what he has done and his doctoral thesis on white indentured laborers and the beginning of systems of oppression in the Caribbean remains fundamental to our study of the region. Um, but he went on to write about the struggles of women under slavery. He wrote about the history of Barbados 
then he initiated uh, the study of West Indies cricket. Now, we're not doing as well as we used to, some of you may know. <laughs> but I can assure you that because of um, the kind of work that Sir Hilary pioneered, which followed from the foundation laid by the great CLR James in that seminal classic work, um, that the whole of the West Indies has got to be proud of. That is a, one of our great contributions to the world, beyond the boundary. Um, uh, Hillary has followed on from that and did a, an incredible amount of work that lays the foundation not only for the study of cricket and the West Indies, but for an understanding of our social history. And this is where he has pioneered, and I think he's a world leader in this respect because there came three edited books, um, Liberation Cricket, uh, sorry, um, uh, Liberation Cricket was the second one, An Area of Conquest, which came out in 1994, Liberation Cricket in 1995, and The Spirit of Dominance, which I think came out in 1998. But apart from that, it wasn't just triumphalism, those names suggest triumphalism, but then he wrote an excellent two-volume history of West Indies cricket, which has since been uh, recognized as probably, um, along with Beyond the Boundary, uh, the second greatest, uh, probably as great as um, CLR James's work. So what I'm saying is that we're dealing here with an extraordinary mind, a great scholar, and not just a Barbadian scholar, but a West Indian scholar of world stature. Um, but that's the tip of the iceberg, because most of us would have been happy with that. You know, he's five years younger than me, and I would have simply wrap up my tent and start party up and so on. I cool, I gone. <laughs> I had enough there. But as an administrator, as an educationist, as a public intellectual discussing the role of corporate responsibility, uh, role, um, the role of education, higher education throughout the region, um, as an administrator of the University of the West Indies, as a pro-vice-chancellor at Mona, and then now as uh, a tremendous leader in education in Barbados as principal of the University of the West Indies, we see the contribution of a man who is uh, our, I think, um, in our generation, our greatest intellectual. So this is what we are talking about here today and we're deeply honored to have you as our speaker. I just want to make one other point. It's not all um, roses. He's had his problems too, as many of you know. He's had to climb his mountain. And I think that is why we appreciate and recognize what you've done so much. And I think that we should, I would appreciate if you all could just say thank you for doing all you've done and welcome. There are many other things I could say here. You know, he was knighted um, in 2007, um, but great institutions continue to recognize his contribution. And he's over here, apart from coming to speak to us. Um, a few days ago, he went to the great University of Glasgow. And the University of Glasgow has given him an honorary doctorate 
in recognition of his scholarship and his leadership in education and his role as a public intellectual in the Caribbean. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to go on. I don't like to stop talk at all. <laughs> Some of my students say no, they don't get time to intervene, but I got to cut this short now. Um, it is a great honor to have Sir Hilary Beckles uh, deliver this CARICOM lecture. And I'd like to say also that um, we're very happy that LSE has um, made the preparations here and they've done it excellently, brilliantly. So could you please now welcome Sir Hilary Beckles to the LSE and could you give her a big hand please as he gives the lecture. The title, the title of which is the CARICOM more or less, I'm not quite sure what the title is, but more or less, more or less. Uh, the Caribbean in a changing global environment. I hope you enjoyed the lecture. Um, Hillary will speak for about 40, 45 minutes, and then you'll have maybe a half hour or so to chat, discuss things, and, um, but I'm allowed a semi-speech, you're not allowed a speech, you just got to make it brief, all right? Thank you very much. It is so difficult to recognize oneself when Klim is finished. It's, uh, it's, uh, the great exaggerator. Uh, but an old friend, and I, I thank you for your generosity. Um, excellencies, uh, distinguished colleagues of the LSE, uh, friends, uh, good evening. It is, it is my honor and my, and my pleasure to be uh, invited to participate in this, in this lecture. I am honored for a number of reasons, because I am a great advocate and supporter of the CARICOM project and anything I can do to assist this endeavor I certainly will. It is an important vehicle on which we as a people are traveling along a historical continuum towards the integration of Caribbean nationhood. Fragmented it is, unified we are hoping it, it will be. And also to, to celebrate the founders of CARICOM and to empower all of those who are responsible for its, its future. I'm also honored and privileged to be uh, in a site of my own academic beginning, not the LSE, but in England uh, here. I travel with my family from Barbados to Birmingham many decades ago. I was I was 13 years old when I, when I came to this country and uh, coming here in uh, 1969 as, as a child, uh, the shock and awe of it all, uh, but at the same time recognizing 
that it was part of a cultural continuum. And in fact, the movement from Barbados to Birmingham was like an internal journey. Everything was familiar. Everything was recognizable. And then, of course, we all understood that we were part of a larger structure, which we now call historically the British Empire. But it was also here in this country that I, I discovered the Caribbean. I left Barbados as a Barbadian, became a Caribbean, a West Indian here in England, uh, met other West Indians for the first time uh, in England, and engaged West Indian society and West Indian culture uh, in England for the first time. And this is very significant in terms of the building of consciousness. I was a rural boy from a village in the most remote part of Barbados, St. Andrew, and I don't know if I have any St. Andrew villagers here. <laughs> so we have a few. <laughs> there we go. But we were, <laughs> we were, we were country folk uh, in, the, in the villages and had no urban experience. So my first urban experience was Birmingham City. And uh, there I met uh, Jamaicans in large numbers because Jamaicans were the majority of the community that I became a, a part of. And they had a very profound influence on my own development, my own consciousness, because Jamaicans led, led in the struggle to defend our communities at a very difficult time. Uh, when it was in need of defense. Uh, from uh, Birmingham, I went to Hull, and from Hull, I went to Jamaica, which seemed a logical place to go. <laughs> and, and there I spent uh, eight years uh, learning to be an academic uh, in Jamaica, at uh, the Mona campus, and enjoying the generosity of it all. And I, I went to Jamaica as a successor to the great legendary our professor of economic history, Douglas Hall. Uh, you all would have known of Douglas Hall, and I, I went there to succeed him, and we became very close friends, and he, in fact, became my academic mentor. So I am, therefore, a product of the diaspora. Um, I have six sisters, and I want you to imagine what it's like to be in a household with five beautiful sisters all the West Indian men gravitated around my household. Uh, it was, there was like honey around the beehive. And uh, one sister is married to a Jamaican, uh, one is married to a Grenadian, uh, one is married to a Nigerian, and I understand there are two potentials, and those two potentials, one is from St. Kitts and the other is from Guyana. So, so <laughs> it, it seems that my household is a genuine Caribbean household. Uh, my own wife is from Jamaica. One of my children is born in Jamaica. One is in Barbados. So in my own household, there are two Barbados and two Jamaicans. <laughs> and whenever we have disputes, and we, have, we invite our Trinidadian neighbor as a tiebreaker. <laughs> but, and that was wonderful, because in the days when there was a fishing dispute between Barbados and Trinidad, uh, I could not rely on the Trinidadian vote. <laughs> but now that Trinidad has joined forces with Jamaica and the merger of Caribbean Airlines and Air Jamaica, now I cannot rely on the Trinidadian vote again. <laughs> so that is how it has been, and, uh, and that is the nature of our social development. 
But we all travel from Africa and from Asia. In my own ancestral case, uh, traveling from Africa, and we would have arrived in the Caribbean as Igbos and Wolofs and Mandingos and Fulanis and Gaz, and these would have been the identities that we would have arrived in the Caribbean with. But we evolved into Barbadians and Jamaicans and Trinidadians and Guyanese. And then we come here to England and we became West Indians. So our identities are constantly evolving and this is very important in the context of the building of this Caribbean nation that we are, we are dedicated to. And Britain has played a very significant role at a moment in time as a peculiar site in the building of this sense of Caribbean identity and Caribbean nationhood. Because this is really the place where, for many of us, for the first time, we engage each other at the level of domesticity, social culture, and activity. And therefore, our consciousness was shaped in many of the inner cities of Great Britain. And today, we are engaged in the dialogue about this identity, critically what is going to be the future of the Caribbean within the context of a changing global environment. I'm invited this evening to join the discussion and to offer a few comments, uh, no more and nothing controversial hopefully, uh, to give my own insights into what I consider to be a possible way forward uh, for the Caribbean. Uh, we are the custodians uh, of it, and we have a responsibility uh, for it. There is a growing perception that globalization, as we understand it, and I will say something about that later on, uh, is hostile to the interests of the Caribbean, hostile to us, specifically because we are young nations, uh, we are small states, and we are still in the process of building our infrastructures, our economy, our governance systems, and therefore we are vulnerable at this particular moment in time to certain forms of external intrusions. There's also a sense, and I will comment on this maybe in a little more detail, that this specific global economic recession has exposed the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities of the Caribbean economy in a way that we did not fully understand. And uh, what we are now hearing from many of the uh, multilateral agencies is that in terms of the English-speaking subsection of the Caribbean world, and, and that's the world I'm going to speak about, not the general Caribbean, but the English-speaking part of it, that our economies are most sluggish in terms of the recovery from the recession. The, the Spanish-speaking Caribbean is showing a little more vitality in terms of economic development. The French-speaking, Dutch-speaking Caribbean are showing again. Uh, the indicators are that they are coming out of the recession. But we in the English-speaking Caribbean, uh, we are in fact the most sluggish of all the economies in the entire hemisphere in terms of responding uh, to the movement away from the recession. The, the, the data coming out of Latin America is quite encouraging. In Latin America, Central America doing reasonably well, uh, and so on. But in our subsector of the region, we are characterized by sluggishness, and therefore we have reasons to be very concerned. Most of our economies are now 
um, defined by high levels of unemployment, between 10 to 25 percent in some places, uh, very high, very high indeed. In some places, there is uh, indicators are that poverty that we had invested so heavily in removing and pushing back that poverty again is on the increase in some places, and that there is a growing sense of disillusionment among the working poor about the potential uh, of the region and its, and its future. But on the other hand, um, many of our governments have made very important strategic initiatives to deal with these issues. Uh, there is a fair amount of restructuring going on of our economies, uh, emphasis on diversification, and increasingly we are seeing uh, the application of critical thinking uh, to the choices that we have to make going, going forward. At the CARICOM level, there is an intensity of functional cooperation, but on the other hand, we also see the evidence of increasing insularity uh, in the Caribbean between nations and a growing sensitivity, a growing sensitivity in the relationship between, between nations. And this is something that is now very much on the agenda and the radar. Immigration, of course, is a big issue uh, in the Caribbean, the movements of Caribbean peoples. And this is significant because we have always been a mobile people. We've been, we were brought from Africa to the Caribbean, from Asia to the Caribbean. We were brought from the Caribbean to Europe, to North America, to Panama. Many of you are now returning to the Caribbean, and we are moving between the territories and the islands and the countries, and we are being on the move. And the, end, the evidence suggests that Caribbean peoples have been moving from place to place where there are opportunities. And if there's a perception that one island or one country has uh, greater growth potential, uh, better opportunities for working families, the people will want to move to those locations. And this has defined the Caribbean for the better part of a century. Uh, many of our uh, grandparents moved to Panama because there were opportunities. They moved to Cuba. Uh, they moved to Guyana. I know, of course, there is an issue of immigration internally in the Caribbean that is generating some sensitivity and tension. The importance of this, and uh, in the context of a recent discussion in the Eastern Caribbean about migration, uh, I was speaking to George Lamin, the great uh, writer, and he said, listen, uh, don't, don't worry too much about it. Uh, the fact is that Caribbean peoples have now reached a stage where they believe they have a right to live in another island or country and they have a right to travel between those islands without hassle and without embarrassment. And if they do believe that they are being harassed by immigration authorities across the Caribbean, what is important here is that the people are of the view that after 50 years of commitment to the regional integration process, that they have a right to travel without harassment. And that's important. I believe that his perspective is important. If it is true, then we must celebrate it, because then we are well on our way towards creating, I believe, the Caribbean nation. And I believe that we will create an integrated Caribbean nation in my own lifetime, which I hope will uh, be long and prosperous, as Clem has promised me it will be. <laughs> but remember the famous statement by Eric Williams. 
um, uh, what is really a very cynical comment on Caribbean integration. What God has put asunder, let no man put together. <laughs> um, and if God has put the Caribbean asunder, then clearly all of us more than likely will be the Antichrist because we really want to put it together. We are really committed to putting this Caribbean together where our people can move freely uh, between islands and territories, uh, set up their families, uh, access resources, build capacity, and generate a life uh, for themselves. So when we speak of the Caribbean then, we are not just speaking about the Caribbean economy. We are speaking about the Caribbean as a civilization, as a very distinct civilization. It is recognizable. Anywhere you go on this planet, there is a perception that there is a Caribbean civilization that can be defined. So when, when Bob Marley sings, he sings for all of us in the Caribbean. When Usain Bolt runs, he runs for all of us. Sparrow, he sings for all of us. When Walcott got his Nobel laureate, and Arthur Lewis got his Nobel laureate, and Naipaul got his Nobel laureate, they got them for all of us. So there is a sense that there is a unified cultural space called the Caribbean. There's a Caribbean society, and we know the feel of that society. There is a system of ideologies in the Caribbean, and at the heart of that ideological system in the Caribbean is a commitment to social justice. If you take all of the political philosophies that are available to you, and you ask yourself which of those philosophies has the greatest commitment by most Caribbean peoples, it is the commitment to social justice. Everywhere you go, there is, at the heart of the governance process, at the center of party politics, at the center of the political discourse, a commitment to social justice. And that is historical because we have been involved in a flight from slavery, a flight from indenture, a flight from colonization to build a nation and social justice has been the guiding principle for the better part of 300 years in the Caribbean. But we also, we also at the same time, we are part of a diaspora. There are more of our people outside the Caribbean than in. So we are a global nation. Uh, we have an enormous diaspora here in this country. Uh, we have a diaspora in uh, North America, Central America. And Caribbean peoples everywhere are now, for the first time, beginning to put all of this together in functional ways. We are now beginning to emphasize the importance of our collective identity as a system of building capacity and sharing resources. It can be argued it can be argued that not only are we the first uh, or a global nation, but we are arguably the, the world's first globalized space. This is important, I believe, in understanding what globalization is, what it has done to us, and what we're doing with it. We are the first global space. It is the first space on this planet where all the races and cultures were thrown together. Africa, Asia, Europe, all bundled together in these islands and territories of the Caribbean. Um, uh, Columbus was a very naughty fellow, but he, the fact is that he did it, linked it all up together, uh, all mayhem broke loose, 
uh, resulting in slavery, uh, the genocide of our native Caribbean peoples. Jamaica used to be densely populated with native peoples, not anymore, gone, genocide. All of our societies have gone through this process. And of course, we have to look at the various phases. So thrown together into the Caribbean, at a time when nationalism in other parts of the world is running its full extent, all the races and cultures are being thrown together on these islands in the Caribbean. Of course, it wasn't a happy thrown into together. Thrown together under terrible circumstances. And globalized in fundamental economic ways. And if you want to understand economic globalization at its inception, you only have to imagine uh, a Caribbean slave owner. Take a Jamaican sugar plantation. Anywhere in Jamaica, Barbados, anywhere. An Englishman, a Scotsman, comes out, buys a thousand acres of land. He brings his labor from Africa, goes to Africa, ship, ship in his labor, his labor supply from another continent. He needs to feed them, he needs to have building materials, and he brings in that material from North America. He needs money, he brings that money from Europe. He creates a commodity, sugar, cocoa, pimento, coffee, and then he ships that commodity to other continents of the world, and he makes a fortune. He makes a fortune, and he does two things. He builds a massive mansion in the Caribbean, and if he really makes a big fortune, he builds a castle in England. So he has a great house in Jamaica and Barbados, and he has a castle in England. And he's moving money and people all over the world, and he's globalized, and he's making a fortune. How many Caribbean entrepreneurs today can do that? But that is what the slave owners did. And it threw the Caribbean into the heart of globalization. In fact, you can, have, you can actually argue that the first phase, the first phase of globalization was invented around the Caribbean, and the Caribbean was at the center of that first phase. And which is why economic historians would always argue that the international entrepreneurship culture, which is very much a common feature of the world economy today, that the antecedents of those global entrepreneurs are the Caribbean, the Caribbean slave owners. They were the ones who were tricontinental in their movement and uh, in the celebration of the economy. So we were at the center of this. In the second phase of that process, we brought in more than half of a million people from India and China. And we brought those into the Caribbean in the second phase. And shifted the structure and nature of Caribbean societies. So now we have a massive community of our citizens from Asia. And many came from, of course, Lebanon, Syria, and elsewhere. So now we have this, this structure, the Caribbean again, being reshaped by global movements and global trends. We are arguably in the third phase of this. This is the third phase, and this is a phase of globalization that we know we associate with information, communications, technologies. And in this phase, we're now asking the question, can small nations survive in this phase of globalization? Will small nations survive in this stage of globalization? These are the questions that are being asked. And these are the questions that we have to answer in the Caribbean. We know that globalization is a contradictory process. And by contradictory process, what I mean is, 
it speaks about openness and borderlessness on the one hand. On the one hand, it speaks about openness, borderlessness, but on the other hand, it, it is really about strong nations versus weak nations, and strong economies versus weak economies, and strong nationalisms versus weak nationalisms, and if your nationalism is weak, and your nation is weak, you are in difficulty in this present environment. Unless, unless you have a strategic response, unless you have a strategic response that gives you the edge, gives you an advantage in that environment. But we know the structure. So the question is, how fit is the Caribbean at this time to engage globalization? Fragmented as we are, splintered into 15 or 16 or 17 small communities that are really, in fact, constitutionally classified at the moment as nations. In cultural terms, the Caribbean is one nation. It is one nation. In political and governance terms, 17. Right. So you might very well say, but surely this is an irrationality. But how do we respond to globalization at this moment? Do you really believe that each of our small islands will find that comparative edge, that specific advantage to take on China and Japan and Germany and Brazil and these other countries at a competitive level, competing to find market share in this global environment? Are we viable as we are structured at this moment in time? Now, many scholars have said that our nationalism at the moment is weak. It is weak because it's fragmented. The Caribbean does not speak with one voice on all the issues. We compete among ourselves in the same areas where we should be cooperating. Our governance structures are designed to create even further fragmentation. Our federation, which was a noble effort, fell away. Uh, CARICOM is about functional cooperation, trade, capacity building, other areas. Do we need to take, do we need to take the final step? Some scholars have argued that at the moment, our responses at the level of government to globalization are not as logical as they ought to be. That we need to find a way to forge a common vision on most of the issues that are facing us. A common vision, a common view, pool our capacities. It's a good sign when the airlines in the Caribbean are finding a way now to build capacity and to build large companies. That's a good sign. We need to build that across, across, across many sectors of our economies. But let me tell you where I think we have our greatest difficulty at the moment. As a people, I think we have our greatest difficulty in the context of higher education. That is where I think we have our greatest challenge. And I'm speaking in a university environment, and I believe this is where we have our greatest challenge at the moment. Let me give you some basic statistics. If you take the age cohort 18 to 30, which is a kind of standard UNESCO type age cohort, the enrollment in higher education in the English-speaking Caribbean is less than 15% of that cohort. 
It is less than 15% in that cohort in the English-speaking Caribbean. And it is the lowest enrollment in the entire hemisphere of the Americas. North America is 50% of that cohort and rising. These are students enrolled in colleges, campuses, universities. North America is 50% and rising. Latin America is 40% and rising. Even the Spanish-speaking Caribbean is close to 35 40%. And we in the English-speaking Caribbean, less than 15 And if you take the English-speaking Caribbean and break it down into components of the enrollment, then we have the Bahamas and Barbados at about 40%, which, which is about the hemisphere average. So Bahamas, Barbados not doing badly. And then at the other extreme, we have the OECS, the Eastern Caribbean, the Windward and Leeward Islands, less than 7%. Jamaica and Trinidad are bunched up maybe around 20% or so. Jamaica and Trinidad, Tobago. Bahamas, Barbados at the extreme, the OECS at the other extreme. Now, all of the models of economic development that we have looked at, every model, whether you use a, a liberal market model, a socialist model, whichever model you are using, they all suggest that access to higher education, professional training, is the single most important variable in the potential for development. If that is true, that the potential for national development is an expression of the people in your society who have had professional education, academic education, training, then you can very well ask the question, how in peril, therefore, is the English-speaking Caribbean in that regard? I would think that we are in great difficulty because all of the investors who come to the Caribbean, external investors who come to the Caribbean, looking for potential sources of business development will tell you that the main problem in the Caribbean is a chronic shortage of critical skills. More so, more so than a shortage of capital. More so than a shortage of capital, the biggest drag on Caribbean development is a shortage of persons with critical skills, the skills that are required to drive a modern economy. And the fact is that the higher education system or access to higher education is the vehicle that you will need to acquire these skills. And you can therefore see the difficulty that we are in. And if you, if you pan out and go to Southeast Asia and you look at those countries that have had spectacular economic growth in the last 20, 30 years, that process is driven by revolutions in higher education, professional training, human resource development. They have poured their money into capacity building. And yet, despite this reality which I'm painting for you, most governments in the Caribbean are cutting their budgets on higher education. Most governments. Because the fact is that most governments at the moment are experiencing a fiscal deficit on their current accounts. They have fiscal gaps, and therefore they have to cut public expenditure. Uh, most of them are under tremendous pressure from the multilateral agencies, the World Bank, the IMF. Uh, cut your public expenditure. Your public expenditure is primarily education and health care. You cut education, you cut health care, you cut the citizens where it hurt most. And that is the reality 
that we are faced with at the moment. Now, most countries are doing their best to build their capacity in education, but at the same time, by trying to reduce the amount of expenditure. As an educator, I will tell you that my own view on the matter is that this is not an expenditure. It is an investment. And I, my perspective is it's, it's an investment in the citizenry and the capacity to develop. And therefore, when I speak to Caribbean governments through the University of the West Indies Network, this is the perspective we impart. This is not an expenditure. You have to find a way to make the investment in the human and the human development. So if you compare that reality with the historical perspective, what did we inherit from the British government? The British government ran most of these economies for two, three hundred years. Take Jamaica, the largest of our populations, the largest of our economies, uh, the British went into Jamaica in 1655. Jamaica became independent in 1962. So for those 300 years, the British government ran the economy, they ran the political discourse, they ran the administration, they ran the country. Okay, Jamaica was given independence in 1962. Uh, undeveloped infrastructure. Two million people. Inadequate health care. Inadequate public infrastructure, transportation, weak agricultural investments, uh, poor urban planning, uh, poor rural infrastructure, massive level of illiteracy, over 50% of the people functionally illiterate. And then you're given that and you say, go and develop. Okay. Go and develop. Go. You're independent. Go and develop. Half your people can't read or write. The country is in an absolute infrastructural mess. The result is that half of the people poured in from the countryside into the city looking for opportunities. Looking for opportunities for the children. Create massive urban ghettoization. Creates a social problem. The country spirals into a difficulty. The same thing happened in Port of Spain. Now, same thing happened in Nigeria, Lagos. So the British government then say, go and develop. And you have 20 years to do it. Because it took Britain four or 500 years to achieve sustainable economic development. And those of us who uh, have studied economic development, uh, we know what Britain went through. You have to cut off the king's head. You have to have two revolutions. You have to have child labor in the factories, in the mines. You have to have the poor laws. You have to have workhouses. You terrorize the working class people, bum, bum, bum. And you generate enough capital to plow back into the economy. You have slavery. You have imperialism. You exploit the poor internationally. And you get developed. Now, and after you... So after 400 years of that, your economy is put on a self-sustainable path of development. It's grown, it's expanded, it's grown. And then you say to your colonies, okay, go, go away. You're independent and develop. The countries make a noble effort to develop. 
they make a noble effort to develop. One of the things they said, well, the resources in this country are for, are for the people of the country. The bauxite belongs to the people of Jamaica. The oil belongs to the people of Trinidad. Bauxite belongs to the people of Guyana. The beaches belong to the people of Barbados and elsewhere. These are the people's assets. We have to own them. We have to own them. We have to develop them. We have to plow the profits back into the society. And then you go into a process, you nationalize international capital. Then you are classified as a threat to the world economy. Your government is destabilized, and so on and so forth. So, where are we with, with, all, of, with all of this? Where are we with, with all of this? It is clear that we need solidarity in the Caribbean. And I will give you my final example. <clears throat> and I'm not coming to the end, but I'll give you my final example. And I know you would expect me to say something about cricket. <laughs> and I will say just a little something about cricket. You pull it. <laughs> Caribbean peoples have made the greatest single cultural investment in cricket. Some countries have invested in the theater and opera. We have invested in the culture of cricket. Millions of dollars of capital invested in facilities over 150 years. We cannot measure the emotion that we have invested in it. <laughs> but we have invested all that we had in this enterprise called cricket because we believe it was a rational investment. We had the capacity, we had the skill, we believe we had the competence, and that would give us the combination to create a product, and that product we can put on the world market, that product gives us a global advantage, and we could yield high returns from that investment to the benefit of our national development, and we made the investment. And it was a Caribbean investment made by all citizens. The working class made the investment, the middle classes, the upper classes, all races, whites, Indians, browns, blacks, everybody made investments in that cricket. A genuine Caribbean effort across all races and cultures, all classes, all territories, we made that investment. It is a unique historical experiment. It is a unique historical experiment. It yield a number of firsts. We, we put on the field of a game the world's first multiracial sporting team. And that is very significant. When the West Indies cricket team moved out there into the world, we had blacks, whites, Indians, Chinese, Jews, Lebanese, Syrians, mixed race people. We had Caribs, <laughs> native people, all the people of the Caribbean were out there representing a region in a team the world had never before seen a multiracial sport complex like that. And it became a world beater. It changed the scope of the game and it dominated the world for the better part of 20 years. Now, the yield was very high. Prestige, uh, dignity, identity. We became known for excellence in this area. We achieved tremendous solidarity as a people. 
discipline was built into masculinity because we're looking really at a masculine product. Men who are doing this, we now have a women's cricket team, but we're speaking of the men's cricket team in this instance. The men became characterized by masculine discipline, hard work, capacity to learn, willingness to follow, inspirational leadership, and all of that created a product. We are now seeing the unmaking of that. Now, wrote a book about this 10 years ago, that this was coming, that this trend was coming down the tracks, and that the Caribbean world in the age of globalization would be adversely affected. And the best way to measure how we will be affected is to see what will happen on the cricket field. That players will have brokers and agents, fine, to have agents and brokers and but what will happen is that the citizen will then place himself before the nation. And this is where the rubber hits the road. Where a citizen says to his nation, who is called, you are called to come and represent your nation in the global arena. You say to your nation, I am not representing my nation in the global arena because I have an income to make elsewhere. Now, this is where we are at at this moment, where the citizen has now transcended the interests of the state. So, the emergence of a philosophy of citizen before nation is very much the result of globalization in the Caribbean context, because the state in the Caribbean is so weakened by its fragmentation that it cannot assert itself over the citizen in ways that are required to build nation. Personally, I cannot imagine uh, Cook, the young England batsman. I cannot imagine Strauss. I cannot imagine Clark of Australia uh, being called to play test cricket for the country and saying to uh, the country, no, I'm not playing for you. I'm going to go and make some money in India or somewhere else. I think the reaction to, of the nation would be unified. Uh, in the Caribbean, because of the nationalism is weakened, the reaction is fragmented. And so we are entering into a phase where we're going to see that form of activity in many other areas of life, not just in cricket, but we will find increasingly more of that. And of course, uh, given that in the Caribbean, the public culture and the role of men in shaping the public culture and the masculinity in that process. I must confess, I, some of the dance hall music I hear and the way in which women are vilified in the dance hall music, and you have that music in your household, and you listen to it, uh, and it's, the first thing you say to yourself is, it is great music, but why do they have to have those un uncouth lyrics on that beautiful music. So you celebrate the music, which is your African ancestry of the rhythmic structure of the music, but then the lyrics on top of the music subverts the meaning of the music, and therefore we have this challenge. And uh, Then the view is that young men, we have a right to say how, what, where, when. And therefore we see in the area of cultural expression, again, a confrontation to the sensibility of the state, 
and the sensibility of the nation. I'm not a believer in censorship. I'm a great believer in cultural liberty expression. But there are lines where, in my judgment, it goes too far. And I think that what we are seeing in the Caribbean is the impact of globalization in the cultural space because it generates a tremendous amount of revenue. And it empowers a group of people who make a lot of money out of it. So it is wealth accumulation before nation, individual before nation. So you make money, you do very well, and your society is reeling under the impact uh, of it. And then we now have this problem of trying to build large companies. How are we going to build large companies in the Caribbean that can defend our citizens in terms of employment, in terms of economic growth? Most of our companies are breaking up. Sajikor Financial is now the largest financial conglomerate in the Caribbean, a genuine Caribbean multinational spread across the Caribbean. But with the recession, what we're finding is that each nation, each territory, is now protecting its own capital market. So it is now becoming very difficult to move capital from one island to another, to move money across territorial boundaries, to create regional companies and regional conglomerates. The reaction to the crisis and the recession is protectionism, and therefore the money markets are being uh, isolated. And this is something that I think we must reverse. It is a jerk-need reaction, but I think we must reverse it because we are not going to build viable companies if they're going to be small, parochial companies based on individual nations. And I think this is now one of the biggest challenges that are facing all governments in the Caribbean, how to craft a fiscal and legislative structure to allow cap Caribbean capital to move across the region. And if we don't do this, we will continue to feel the consequences because in this moment of globalization, there are no friends. You have friendships of a certain kind, but then you discover that even, even in universities, there are some universities, for example, that you have built up a wonderful relationship with over 100 years. But in this age, the struggle for students Universities that you have collaborated with and cooperated with for 100 years are suddenly competing with you in your own market. Now, fine, that's how it should be, but understand that that is the nature of all things at the moment. So, if you take our financial sector, the Western economy have said, we have problems with your financial sectors. And you have been following the stories of the OECD nations putting tremendous pressure on the Cayman Islands, on Barbados, on the Bahamas especially, about the offshore financial sectors. And these are the multinational agencies that told the Caribbean economies, move out of sugar, go into financial services. So you move out of sugar, you go into financial services, you become good at it, and just at the moment you become good at it, they tell you we're going to shut it down. It is too good. And now we are fighting this uphill battle to protect a sector of our economies that is modern, that is viable. The tax that this government has proposed to impose in Great Britain upon Caribbean tourism is going to hurt the Caribbean tourism sector. There is no doubt about that. It is going to hurt the Caribbean tourism sector. 
they have already undermined the banana regime that has subverted the banana industries in the Eastern Caribbean and have driven those countries in the Eastern Caribbean to the brink of bankruptcy. Now, what benefit could it be to Britain and to France and to Germany to destroy the economies of small islands in the Caribbean that are dependent on the exportation of 50 tons or 100 tons of bananas? What benefit, what marginal benefit is to be derived? And this, the tragic aspect of this development, this, this aggression towards the modern Caribbean economy, is precisely what I have just said. Surely there has to be room for moral and ethical relationships in the world economy. There has to be room for moral and ethical relationships in the world economy. The fact is that Britain became an industrial superpower in the 18th century because it effectively exploited the Caribbean. And we know of that development. We know of that development. It's a mystery. We know that most of the major banks in this country, the Midland Bank, the Royal Bank of Scotland, Barclays Bank, Lloyds of London, all of these institutions emerged out of plantation slavery in the Caribbean. We know the facts. We're all part of that research. We've done the research. It is well known. We know that Britain reaped tremendous benefits, more than any country in Western Europe, that were all involved in the slave trade. Britain was the most profitable slave trading nation. Built their cities, London, Bristol, Liverpool, Manchester, all the great cities, commercial centers. Against that background, the question is, should Britain not have a special obligation towards the small Caribbean nations that it so effectively exploited for 300 years? Should there not be a moral issue involved in that? I am aware of something which is even more disturbing to me. When I lived in this country uh, in the 70s and 80s, there was a vibrant West Indian business class in this country. The Jamaicans were in the vanguard and in the leadership of that West Indian corporate development in the, in the cities. We're finding now, when I look at the data, I'm finding that the West Indian share of the British corporate wealth has shrunk. It is not what it used to be. So the question, therefore, even in our diaspora here, are there forces operating in the British economy that are not supportive of Caribbean <laughs> West Indian entrepreneurship? We need to understand that. That's important because we need strong Caribbean enterprises here in Great Britain that will play a part in the future development of the Caribbean economy. So if we are being weakened at home and we are being weakened here in the diaspora, then we are in great difficulty. So, despite it all, I believe that the future for the Caribbean is positive. Because Caribbean peoples are energetic, they are, they are creative, sometimes they're too energetic, <laughs> sometimes there's too much energy. But we, we need to know how to steer it and how to guide it and how to manage it. The capacity is there. Each time, each time a Caribbean citizen does something extraordinary, I mean, when you see 
Usain Bolt eating Trelawney yam and running the way he does, you know that that is just the tip of the iceberg. That is not a mystery. There's nothing mysterious about it. There is something that is happening in the society that produces that genius and that excellence. It is there. It's in the, it's in the DNA of the people. It's there. I believe that time has come when we will find a way to put this together. We have to put it together because the capacity, the mental and the intellectual capacity is there. There is no doubt in my mind it is there. I also believe that the time has come for us to engage the reparations discourse. We need now Caribbean governments now in this global environment should respond to the aggression that has befallen us in our financial sector, our tourism sector, our banana sector, all the areas where we are experiencing pushback from the West. We need to respond to that with the reparations discourse. That you had unjust enrichment for 300 years. Slavery and the slave trade were crimes against humanity. Wherever there were crimes against humanity, there ought to be reparations. And you begin the reparation discourse by apologizing for the crimes that you have committed, and then you begin the process of fair and equitable settlement of that history. The people of the Caribbean have been the victims of these crimes against humanity. And that discussion must be placed on the table at this moment in time and place alongside all of the other discussions. And so if it is said that some of the Caribbean nations are failed states, well, we need to link a discussion of failed states to crimes against humanity, colonization, and all of the consequences that have occurred. It is a complete discussion. It cannot be a one-dimensional discussion. It has to be a discourse where all the issues are placed before, the, before us for proper conversations. We have some good brands in the Caribbean, and these brands will help us to promote our industrial capacity. I believe that we will find a way to achieve excellence eventually in tourism, in financial services, in money management. I believe that we will deepen the integration process despite some of the challenges that we are having at the moment. These are short-term reactions. I believe that the very force of citizenship, the force of citizenship where Caribbean peoples are building their families across territories, they're building their families across territories, they're building their social networks across territories, and they're going to be insisting that those territories be all seen as home. And I believe that is very much before us uh, in short time. And here in the diaspora, I believe that you have a leadership role to play in all of these discussions. Because in many respects, you are the model for the future as to how to integrate your capacity, think coherently, think in a united form, and project yourself as who you are, uh, West Indian people. I thank you very much.
very much, uh, Hilary, and um, I think you, you'll agree with me that there is another chapter in his life which is veering more and more towards the political. So we have not heard the end of the story yet. And uh, we hope that this would be a career across. that your contribution will be across the region. Now, we've got um, just about 15, 17 minutes or so. So um, I prefer if you don't make a comment or the kind of preamble that I'm famous for, <laughs> and that you will just ask Sir Hillary a very straight question, and he'll be able to respond. Because we only, we've only got about 17 minutes before close-up time. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Professor, for quite an enthralling lecture. Uh, the question I need to put to you is this. I have just acquired a Guyanese machine-readable passport, and it says it's a CARICOM passport. And my question to you is this. What are your suggestions for the furtherance of free movement of labor and regional integration? Thank you. Could we take um, all four questions and then um, Sir Hillary would respond? Okay. Uh, Sir Hilary, Mayor, thank you very much for your speech. I'd like to, to raise just two brief points. Isn't, isn't one of the uh, problems with financial services, if I may take the example, the long-running saga in the Turk and Caicos Islands, which has dominated the financial press internationally, uh, the corruption involved there, hasn't this undermined uh, financial services within the Caribbean. The second point is in regard to your comment about uncouth lyrics in music, and I'm very glad that you said what you did. And I'd like to refer particularly to the vicious homophobic lyrics that are coming out of Jamaica. We've actually had, I think, two singers now banned by the Home Office from entry into this country because of the vicious homophobia inciting the murder of homosexuals. How are we going to deal with this? It's much more than uncouth lyrics. They're actually criminal lyrics. Thank you. Just two questions here, um, Dr. Beckles. And the first is, in answering the question I was just asked, if you could make the link to slavery and the legacy of slavery regarding homophobia among blacks. Uh, the second one is, Given the sort of mainstream model of development in this age seems to be on the back of structures of military dominance, economic dominance, and um, individuality, is this the aim of Caribbean development, or what should it be? Should it be to become what industrialized countries are today? Hi there. Um, my question is, do you think that the power lies within the Caribbean for the development of the Caribbean? Um, because I, as somebody from this country, I don't know whether the development and the progressing of the Caribbean is in, the power is in the Caribbean, or even necessarily here. So where does the power lie? Okay, I 
should stop them. Okay, um, we've got five questions here, so we'll, we'll stop and let uh, Sir Hillary respond to this, please. Thank you. Uh, the, the, the issue of, of the free movement of peoples, I, I believe that there is a commitment uh, in principle across the Caribbean to the concept. Um, I think that uh, because of the recession and the, the growing unemployment in each particular jurisdiction and the fear of unplanned immigration uh, and the development uh, the challenges of managing the cities, the inner cities, there is there's considerable inertia in that in that regard. And I believe that the, the political leadership has taken the view that it would be irresponsible to um, engage in the free movement uh, uh, without restriction in the context of circumstances that will not lead to the empowerment of the immigrants themselves. Um, what they have done, they have opened up to professional communities uh, professional persons, graduates of universities and colleges, persons who in their judgment uh, will be able to hold their own and fend for themselves and, and not be an immediate charge on the state for social policy issues. So I think that, that is where things are at at the moment. And I know that Barbados was a great net beneficiary of Guyanese immigration in the 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, out of Guyana especially. Uh, again, and that dialogue took place within the context of the fact that thousands of Barbadians had immigrated to Guyana uh, in the 1880s, 1890s, down to 1940s. And Guyana was a place where Barbadian workers went to make a living. So there is a special relationship there of history and of time. But I believe that there is a commitment uh, in principle. Um, the financial services issues, the, the challenge, and remember that Turks and Caicos are not independent nations. Turks and Caicos are British colonies. <laughs> Turks and Caicos are still governed by the Home Office and by Britain. They are still British colonies. And to the extent that there have been allegations about corruptions there, that's an internal matter to Britain, I presume. Um, I think that most, most Caribbean governments have worked very hard uh, to dispel the, char the challenge and the charge that there have been um, unwanted or illegal activities taking place in the financial services sections. In fact, the research that I have seen have indicated that in terms of global compliance, uh, that the Caribbean financial services sector is one of the most globally compliant and that they're way up there in terms of compliance. So, um, the charge has not been substantiated. I, I believe that most countries have done very well to run an efficient and effective and, and morally legitimate um, offshore financial sector. Uh, in terms of the music, and bear in mind, I, I don't want anyone to think that it is, it is only out of Jamaica that music is coming. Dancehall is coming from Barbados, it's coming from Trinidad, it's from everywhere. Dancehall is now a Caribbean music. It, is, it might have started in one place, but it has now become regionalized. And uh, to the extent that we have a challenge with the music and the lyrics, we are also find it in Calypso. So it is not specific to reggae or variants of it. It's all the music at a particular moment of time. And I don't want to dwell on this because um, I'm, from the, I'm from the Marvin Gaye generation where you, 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 you said it. So, so if, 
if you're from the serenading generation, you know, then everything else seems uh, a bit too edgy. So uh, the younger people will have to find a way. And I think that there is still some excellent music coming out of the Caribbean. What about the homophobia? No, I think... No, I think no, I think it's okay. I, I think it, I think it's okay. I think I think it's it's okay. Um, one of the things, you know, many years ago, um, many years ago, I was invited to give a public lecture uh, in this country, and I went along to give the lecture. I wrote back and said I was I was honoured to give the lecture. And I think because of my name, Hillary, it was assumed that I was a female. <laughs> and I, I turned up to give the lecture, and when I announced myself as Hillary Beckles, they were shocked. Because I was invited by a lesbian organization. Um, and uh, I didn't know this. And they thought I was female. And I was treated very harshly. And at the end, I said to them, listen, I have no interest whatsoever in anyone's sexual orientation. But there has to be something called common courtesy. And that you deserve, I deserve common courtesy. Uh, they apologized to me and wrote a check and said, we hope that this will make the pain go away. <laughs> so there, there's homophobia in uh, many places, in many forms of music, in film. You, in, it dominates Hollywood. It's everywhere. And I don't think it's specific to Caribbean music. I think it's something that is part of world culture at the same. Um, in terms of development, no, I don't think that the Caribbean, that the, the best thinkers in the Caribbean are not thinking about the industrialization of the Caribbean and a 19th century sense of factories and smoke and fog and pollution. Uh, the language is about the green economy. Uh, that's the language. It's about the sustainable green economy. It's about human build industries. It's about services. It's about finance, banking, finance, tourism. Cultural industries are now gaining tremendous ground, art forms, and so on. So I don't think there is an agenda to industrialize the Caribbean in the, in the 19th century sense, where we destroy the environment that we, we love so much and which is going to be our future. Though we are concerned in some, in some areas, uh, we are concerned about the coastal environment. We are concerned in some areas about the coastal environment. And at my university, for example, we have an institution that the governments of the region uh, finance to, to protect the coastal and marine environment from the tourism development projects, you know, the, the all-inclusive hotels, the cruise ships that are coming in. We've been getting a lot of pollution of the Caribbean Sea by cruise ships. We have to monitor that, protect that. Is having an, an impact on the coral reefs, on the fishing environment. So yes, we have to watch and we have to manage those things very, very carefully. As to whether the Caribbean has the internal combustion to drive its own development, I think yes. I think, I think it has. It has always had that. Uh, I believe that the external world has been harsh to the Caribbean because that's the legacy. Uh, the legacy of the Caribbean is that it's a place to be exploited. It has been a place to exploit from slavery, colonization, uh, mining, oil, bauxite. You know, the, the legacy of Western capital is to see the Caribbean as a place to exploit with no responsibility for it, for the consequences of that exploitation. So there's a legacy. And I believe where you have a legacy, there tends to be a heritage. So we have to reverse all of that now and engage 
uh, international investors with a new perspective of how we see the Caribbean in terms of development. But I believe we have the, we have the energy, we have the ideas, but we have to drive our investment in the professional capacity of our citizens, and that is where I think we need to really focus at this time. Thank you, Hillary. We, we'll take, uh, I'm sorry, I don't think we'll be able to address all these questions, but I remember one, two, the first one, the first one, three, okay. Excuse me. Okay, we'll have to take some people upstairs. <laughs> okay, but yes. I have. Sorry about that, yes. Go ahead. Yeah, okay, fine. Right. Yeah, you'd raise your hand. Okay. Uh, good evening, Professor Beckles. Uh, what do you see as the role of Caribbean academic scholarship at this time with a view to driving greater competitiveness for the Caribbean in the global environment? Yeah, we got to take, um, we'd like to take somebody up there, okay? After this, yes. Well, just in case, let me stand up anyway. <laughs> uh, so, Hillary, we have identified in cricket, in rum, and to some extent in, in, in bananas, a uniqueness of a product which the Caribbean has developed and made known to the world. And I have two questions that will follow from that comment. How do we position ourselves to prevent the recurrence of the behavior in those three instances where the rules of either utilization or acceptance were changed to our own detriment. And the second question, do we need to develop a different type of professional capacity to deal with this behavior going forward? And one last question from up there, please. All right, yes, okay. Fine, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Um, two quick ones. Uh, <laughs> one, I, uh, so Hillary, I'm interested, you mentioned a strategic approach. I'm interested in your thoughts on a strategic approach to Caribbean people addressing the, the political uh, legacy, the, the corruption and the sort of male corrupt political culture um, in many parts of the English-speaking Caribbean, uh, you know, so that we could see more young people, more women involved. Second question, you mentioned, you said that, that uh, higher education was one of the areas that you thought had a lot of difficulty. You would have heard that places like LSE are now charging uh, 9,000 a year. What um, is... Uh, you be doing in terms of attracting people from here, um, not just Caribbean people, but other students from here who would pay for 9,000, they'll get a, a better quality product in, 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 from UE in the Caribbean. I ask, I'm sorry, um, we've run out of time here because we've got to leave this place at eight, you see. Well, and <laughs> Um, I can't comment on that. I think I, I can't comment on that. I, I think the um, High Commissioner will make a comment on that. I'm not sure. Um, in, in the Caribbean, there has been uh, a close intimacy uh, between scholarship and development. Um, you would know that uh, most of the development discourse, whether 
from the economists, the, the political scientists, the, the sociologists, the historians, from the post-independence process, from the 60s right through, a lot of that thinking was driven by the university and the university scholarships. Uh, many of our professors uh, worked in governments and statutory corporations and were advisors to governments. And we worked very closely with all of the governments for 40 years. Uh, in, in shaping the discussion about economic growth and social justice, those were the issues that uh, the university scholastic community played a very important role, as well, of course, as in law, law and governance. I mean, almost all the, the, the practitioners uh, are part of the UE fraternity. But in the 90s, something very interesting happened. In the 90s, when most of our economies ran into difficulty uh, and found themselves on IMF programs, uh, structural adjustment programs, World Bank direction, there was a tendency in the region to attribute a disproportionate share of that responsibility to the university academic community that we were the advisors of governments. We were promoting socialism. We were promoting social justice, equality. We were proposing the nationalization of foreign enterprises to attract a greater share of the revenues from the exploitation of our oil or bauxite. So the, the, the right wing, I believe, uh, unfairly attacked the academic community uh, for creating a circumstance that led to the decline of our economies. Um, that, that has been the overall view. So in the 90s, I believe, there was a retreat. There was, there was an intellectual and academic retreat of scholars from, public from the public space. Um, and we saw, to some extent, a silencing of the intellectual voice. Uh, there was a silencing. It wasn't effectively, it wasn't complete, but there was a tendency for scholars to be much more silent uh, and, and the first part of this century than before. But I think what is now happening is now they are now coming back to the fore. There's now a realization that there is a greater clarity on where we can go and should go. Um, so, but these things, these things go, go in, in, in cycles. So there's a new engagement, I think, which we are finding. And the university itself is playing a much greater role in in advising governments on strategic issues. Take, for example, the issue of trade policy. One of the first things that, that I did uh, at KFIL as a principal there was to establish an institute for trade study, for study of trade law and trade policy. Because we were involved in NAFTA negotiations. We were involved in WTO negotiations. We were involved in about five different levels of negotiations to protect our economies and there was a shortage of skilled trade negotiators in the region. So we had to produce trade negotiators who understood all of these historical issues quickly. And therefore, we established a center, and it is now seen as an international center of excellence for the study of trade law and trade policy. So it's a different kind of engagement now, I believe. Uh, in the Caribbean, I believe that there are a number of brands. I made reference to all of these identities and all of these brands. And we are becoming much more aware of them now than ever before. Certainly in the Caribbean, we did not appreciate, we did not appreciate across the board the value of Caribbean brands. The very fact that Mount Gay, uh, a global brand of Barbados rum, is now owned by Remy Mati, the, the French brandy company. And when I, when I analyze that transaction, uh, I cannot say that I'm impressed. 
but it's a well-known brand that has gone. Um, I was living in Jamaica at the time. I wasn't very pleased when Guinness bought Restrite. <laughs> Again, great brand. Restrite was one of the world's fastest growing beers. Great brand, global brand, uh, Guinness. But, uh, and I think that, and I think most countries have an, an example where one of their historically developed brands, uh, the family that owned the brand, sold the brand. Uh, in some cases, um, governments have not got involved in those transactions. And I think governments have to get involved in those issues to protect. Of course, it's difficult. I'm not saying it's easy to interfere in private property, but there's certain aspects of these things that are of national strategic importance. And I think that now we understand intellectual property issues much better. Now we understand brands, we are, we are getting, I think, a more informed discussion. And uh, there was a, a, a final question. Um, yes, about Caribbean governments and young people. And, and you know, one of the exciting moments of Barbadian politics in the last couple of months was when, in the tragic, in the tragic aftermath of the loss of our prime minister, uh, the people in the constituency said. Um, the king has passed on, bring the queen. <laughs> and the queen happens to be a St. Lucian. <laughs> and the people of that constituency said, bring the queen. And there's, I think, I can't recall the vote, but I think that about 90% of the people <laughs> in the constituency voted for the queen. And the important thing about, uh, about that is that with, with this massive vote for this St. Lucian lady to represent the constituency, the, the people in the constituency asked for a recount because they thought it would have been 100%. <laughs> but, and that's a sign, I believe, of where the young people are thinking. They don't want to hear this nonsense of which island you're from. I think, forget that. They don't want to hear it. We know you, you're here, you're part of us. Come forward. So things are changing. I think that was a very significant development which we have to look at. In terms of UWI here, um, we are making progress. I mean, my colleagues are here, I believe, from the British Foundation of the UWI over here, yes. And I believe you have literature which you are promoting to inform you all that there is a British Foundation. We have an American Foundation, we have a Canadian Foundation, we now have a British Foundation of UWI uh, to create the context for uh, student enrollment and recruitment from here. Um, but, you know, on the agenda, um, 10 years ago, uh, 10 years ago, I wrote a paper for our university council proposing that we establish a branch of UWI here in London. And, and that was discussed. We thought about establishing a branch of UWI in London and in Miami as part of the globalization of UWI and to engage in areas of expertise. We are the experts on Caribbean studies. Uh, I know that Clem has been here in the field for 20 years as an advocate of Caribbean studies. And uh, certainly we could partner. But I know that we are now looking at recruiting students uh, from the UK, not only in Caribbean studies areas, but in medicine and in law and many other areas <laughs> And we are going to be actively and aggressively recruiting students from here. Uh, at my own campus in 
uh, Barbados, um, about 10% of our students are from North America now because we've, the foundations have effectively done that and we have a lot of students coming in. Uh, we have students coming into Jamaica uh, from across Canada and, and the US also. And now we're turning our attention to the UK where we believe we have a comparative advantage. UWI is well known here. It's, it's a brand, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great university. Uh, not just because I'm a part of it, but objectively it is a great university. Uh, many of my colleagues will say that I'm not a UWE graduate, so I cannot speak for it. But I am a UWE worker. <laughs> And, but it's a great university, and I believe it will do well when we're able to open the doors to recruitment here uh, on the three campuses of UWI, Mona, St. Augustine, and Kefil, as well as the open campus. So you can stay where you are if you want to. You can stay right here, and you can enroll in degree programs through the open campus. So, uh, so many possibilities are there. Thank you. Well, before you go, there are a few things I want to say. First of all, I think this gives you an idea of the quality of work that um, Hillary has done over the years and continues to do, not only in Barbados, but across the region. And you can see the implications of what he's been doing for the political evolution of our region as a whole. And you can see why he has this optimism about the CARICOM idea, and maybe the great federal idea that died on the vine uh, between 1958 and 62, that we'll move towards that. Not in my lifetime, a little bit older than you, but um, you know, within your lifetime. Um, so I just want you to give a big hand again. Um, Alan Revelle, the LSE events manager, has asked me to make a very brief announcement. And this is closely tied up with the game of cricket. It's an evening with um, Mike Atherton, who is a former captain of England and a very good friend of mine. Um, Mike will be doing a Q&A, a question and answer session here on the 27th of July from 6.30 to 8 p.m. So on the 27th of July, uh, from 6.30 to 8 p.m., an evening with Mike Atterton. Now, you need a ticket, but you don't have to pay for it. <laughs> and you could get the ticket by phoning 0207 6043, 0207 955 6043, or um, there is the university LSE email here. You could email them here at events, events at lse.ac.uk. Now, a lot of you have been following Mike's uh, very incisive comments on Sky over the last few years. So I'm sure that it's a worthy event and you don't have to pay for it. So please come on the 27th of July. But before you go, one, once again, a big hand, Mr. Hill.